0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Glad you guys made it through the runners, well, around them, hopefully. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here, and I'm excited to be in worship with you this morning. We're continuing a series on the book of Genesis, and uh, Brian and I were actually talking this week. We, we knew that there was no children's church during the summer, and yet we still chose to go through these stories, which, quite frankly, are a little bit uh, horrifying <laughs> If we actually look at some of the details, but what we're trying to do is kind of uh, give the kids some things to think about and some questions to ask their parents when they go home. So kids, I know that that none of you have ever done this, but maybe if you just like knew a friend that, that has ever done this, okay, have you ever gotten really mad at your parents and maybe even screamed, I hate you, I don't want you to be my dad anymore, anybody ever done that? Alright, we don't have to, we won't, we won't take a poll. Or maybe you guys were out, you're doing something as a family, and you wanted to do something, and your parents wouldn't let you, and you get really upset at them, and so what do you do? You kind of, you kind of walk over here, right? And you sort of pretend like you're not really with them. Has anyone, anyone entered seventh grade and started doing that yet? It'll happen. It'll happen. Well, the question I want you to ask yourself is, is if you've ever done that, if you've ever said that, or sort of pretended like your family wasn't your family, like they hadn't chosen you, Did it make them not your family? Did they stop being your parents just because you said something mean to them? So I want you at lunch today to ask your parents what it means to be part of a family and what it means to be part of God's family and what it means when God chooses you, even when you don't think you want him to have chosen you. Okay? Ask them that question at lunch today. Well, as I said, uh, some of these stories in... Genesis are a little troubling, and the one that we're looking at this morning, I think, probably wouldn't even have gotten picked up by HBO because it's too risque. It's a little too troubling and disturbing, Uh, but we're going to look at it anyway. So this is our Old Testament reading. It's from Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of a named Hirah, And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, He may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hiram the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father in law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered her face with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over by her, to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and was named Zara. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, your word to us can be extremely confounding. And yet, even in the places that we can understand, we, we have allowed ourselves such denial about who we are. We distance ourselves from from people that look different than us, that act, we think, differently than us. And so we become so much like Simon. We assume that we deserve your presence. I ask this morning that we would be reminded of, of the horror, the truly stunning, staggering reality of what grace is. Let us see Jesus this morning, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, if you've ever watched Wes Anderson's film, The Royal Tenenbaums, you know that it starts off with this narrative of this family that seems to have such an amazing amount of potential All of the kids are prodigies in their own field at very, very young ages, and it seems like this family is just poised for success in every possible way. But if you've seen the film, you know that that's hardly what happens. Rather than actually growing up and engaging the world in very wonderful ways, the kids are are kind of stuck in this weird adolescence, and Royal, their father, leaves their mom and gets separated from his entire family and ends up living in a hotel for years, And the kids all really become psychological, social, and professional disasters. None of them can seem to get their feet under them. But the real punch of the film comes when they find out their mom is getting remarried. And Royal comes in and says, oh, uh, by the way, I have stomach cancer. And so everyone's thrown into a, just an a, a emotional turmoil, and they're trying to grapple with their father's morality, and, and suddenly the family kind of comes back together in a, little, in a little way. And you come to find out, though, that Royal doesn't actually have cancer. He, he made up this doctor, and he made up a hospital, and he's literally taking Tic Tacs as cancer medicine. And he did it as a way to get his family to come back to him and to gather around him? And and how do you think that that worked out for him once they found out? Dysfunctional families have a long tradition within human storytelling, from the brothers Karamazov to Arrested Development, Royal Tenenbaums to Little Miss Sunshine. These stories remain central in our various forms of fiction. Why? Because they remain central to our reality. This morning, we're looking at an episode that is wedged into a much longer and, and increasingly sordid tale of an extremely dysfunctional family. And so if, if you were an Arrested Development fan, we could start something like this. And now the story of a chosen family who lost everything, and the one God who had no choice but to keep them all together. We're going to walk through some details of this story to try to make out what our narrator is up to, but the main question that we're going to be considering is, how is Abraham's family going to survive the wreckage of their own lives? This is the family of promise, and yet it seems like they could not be more off track. And as we consider that question, it's going to lead us to consider a question about our own lives, and it's, it's one that will strike many of us quite a bit closer to home, and that is, what is the nature of grace? What is the nature of grace? We talk about grace a lot, but what do we actually hope that it is? So we've been jumping around a bit in the Genesis story, so I kind of want to catch you up on what's been happening in the broader narrative and the stories that we haven't looked at so we can see what's been going on with Abraham's family. So if we go all the way back to Abraham's lifetime, some of the stories that we didn't walk through together was when Abraham would move into a new area and he would be confronted with men of power, he had this weird proclivity to lie to them. As soon as he saw a man who was more powerful than him, he would tell his wife to pretend like she was his sister, hoping that things would go well. And every time it went horribly. Every time the powerful man would try to take Abraham's wife and then it would just go terrible. But he kept doing it. And in fact, he did it so much that his son Isaac picked up on the exact same troubling pattern. Isaac would tell Rebecca, hey, just tell them that you're my sister whenever they would be around a man of power. Then we watch as Isaac and his wife Rebecca move into their own with their twins, Jacob and Esau. But really, the only thing that we know about this family is the staggering polarization that comes when favoritism becomes the main family trait. That was on their crest, basically. We play favorites in this family. We've already seen some of the ways in which Jacob and Esau learned to treat each other as they realized that they each had one parent that loved them more than the other child. And we saw that they would treat each other and their parents with deception, hostility, and outright murderous rage. But the scriptural narrative is going to continue to peel off all of the other descendants that are not central to the storyline. And we're going to talk about this more in a moment. But but now we're focused on Jacob's family because Jacob is the one through whom the promise is going to continue. And it really becomes the story of the rest of the Old Testament storyline is what is going to happen to Abraham's descendants What's going to happen to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What are Abraham's great-grandkids up to? These are the children of promise. Don't forget that Abraham wandered for his entire life, being promised that he would be given a land, being promised that he would give descendants who would what? Be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so now we see his family, this family that is supposed to be blessing all other nations around them. And so here's here are some stories of his grandkids or his great-grandkids that we haven't uh, looked at. And I just want to catch you up really quickly. So typically, in this culture, blessing and inheritance would go primarily to the eldest male son. Uh, uh, yeah, that's redundant. Male child. The eldest male child. And so it's staggering when we see that it was Jacob chosen and not Esau, right? As we looked at a few weeks ago, it's staggering that the younger brother actually becomes the child of promise, but now we've got a new generation in hand, and Jacob's oldest son is Reuben. And so we should all be asking ourselves at this point in the scriptural narrative, Is is this the guy? Is Reuben the one through whom the promise is going to come? Well, Reuben ends up sleeping with his dad's concubine. And I think most of us would have a really hard time conceiving of any sort of family dynamic where there's just this sort of open relationship with another woman. And so that already is very strange, but it's been very clear since the beginning of time Sleeping with ladies that your dad has slept with is gross and wrong. So Reuben's out. Up next is Simeon and Levi. Could it possibly be one of these two that would be sort of the the one through whom the promise would continue on? Well, these guys find themselves in a bit of trouble. Their sister Dina gets defiled by a kid from the neighborhood, and this was this was a Canaanite kid. It was a pagan kid. And, and he is so enamored with her that he goes to his father and he says, dad, I just really, really want to marry this girl. And so him and his dad, they come to, to Jacob and the family. And Jacob at first kept it a secret from his sons. And, and in a moment, you'll find out why. But when the brothers find out, Simon and Levi go up to this young man and they're like, sure. Yeah, you can marry her. Here's the deal, though. We're all circumcised, so if you want to be part of our family, you have to get circumcised too. But not just you, everybody in your entire village. And then we can all just marry each other's sisters, and it'll be great. And so the kid says, perfect. I can do that. No problem. He's so starstruck with their sister Dina that he and all of the men in his entire village get circumcised. And so a few days later, as they're still in pain and healing, and I don't think I need to explain why a bunch of adult men would need some time to heal, Simeon and Levi enter the town and massacre every living male. And then they take off their women and children and all of their goods as spoils of war. Every living male, in a moment of utter weakness and vulnerability, they lied to them and then they went and murdered all of them. And we think an eye for an eye sounds brutal. Well, up next is Joseph, and, and this story is actually, that we're looking at this morning, is sandwiched right in between the Joseph narrative, and Joseph seems like he could be the guy, but he's, he's kind of, we're not really sure if we like him at first. He's one of the younger brothers, and guess what? He happens to be daddy's favorite. Jacob has, been, has learned all of his life that it's okay to have favorite children, and so he loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. So already his brothers don't really like him, but he still comes to them and says, guys, I've been having these crazy dreams lately, and I'm pretty sure they're going to come true. And guess what? All of you guys are like bowing down and worshiping me, and I'm just pretty great. Now, he was right. It did come true. But really, what we're supposed to take from the way that he comes to them is he's kind of being a turd. He's being kind of prideful. He's not really humble. And so, of course, the brothers are like, dude, you're the worst. We just can't stand you. Already we know that dad loves you more than the rest of us, and now you're telling us these crazy stories. And so they decide to murder him. Murder him. So he comes out to find them, and they capture him and throw him in a pit, and they're going to kill him and then tell their dad that that a wild animal tore him to pieces. But along comes Reuben. Reuben, the guy who slept with his dad's special lady friend, and he at least has the presence of mind to think, nah, this, we can't really do this, right? I mean, murdering our brother? And so he tries to convince the brothers to just hold off, and he's hoping that he can come back and rescue Joseph. But he doesn't get there in time, uh, because as he's gone, Judah pipes up with the most brilliant idea ever. Why would you kill someone when you could make money off of them? I mean if we kill him we're just kind of in the same position but if we if we sell him he's gone and we've lined our pocketbooks after all he says this is literally his reasoning Joseph is our own flesh and blood so we should just human traffic him to strangers not murder him so they sell him to total strangers to slave traders and they dip his jacket in goat's blood and they give it to their dad and they're like dad do you recognize this is this Joseph's coat i mean this is really terrible And Jacob is inconsolable. His favorite son, born to him by his favorite wife, appears to be dead. What we learn is that Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt, where eventually he'll be falsely accused of trying to seduce his master's wife and thrown into a dungeon. But meanwhile, back at Dysfunction Ranch, we get to our story here. Judah has left his brothers. And he's become best friends with the kid from the neighborhood. And then he finds a girl that catches his eye from the same part of town and then begins all this weirdness with Ur, Onan, Sheila, and Tamar. So what's going on? Well, as I said a moment ago, this story is really strange because it cuts right into the middle of the Joseph narrative. And in fact, it's so perplexing to some scholars that they think maybe this story was added in later. But the narrator has actually given us some details to help us figure out how it fits into this broader story. And it's very skillfully written. So let me just piece together some of these things quickly before we consider some implications. Judah here is, is doing, at the very beginning of this chapter, the very thing that his great-grandfather, his grandfather, and his father were afraid of. He, he's turning away from the family and assimilating into the culture around him. Now, this had little to do with the sort of culture wars that we're used to hearing about. Okay? It, it's pretty obvious that clan Jacob is not some sort of moral beacon in the midst of darkness right now. But the thing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood was that if they were the family of promise, if if this family had been called out by the one true God, then to saddle up with their neighbors in marriage would not only wash out the bloodline, but it would have a strong potential for leading their children to worship other gods. And they would no longer know the story of the one true God who had called them to come out of the surrounding culture. So when we read that Judah turns aside from his brothers... And starts hanging out with Hiram and then marries a nameless Canaanite girl. We need to understand it as Judah basically snubbing his nose at the whole idea of being part of the chosen family. He is not interested in having this story pertain to himself. He bears the mark of the covenant and he's probably heard the story of his grandfather Isaac's miraculous birth a hundred times. But he doesn't want to hear it anymore. He's not in the mood. He doesn't want to be part of this family. He doesn't want to be different. And he really doesn't even want to be chosen by God. Now it's not clear if Tamar, the girl that he gets to marry his son, is a Canaanite or if she's a relative from within the clan. Uh, And this would be important, very important to, to Jacob and the rest of the family, but the text doesn't really tell us. Odds are given Judah's proclivities in that he doesn't really care. She was probably Canaanite, but we're not sure. Even more baffling, the text doesn't really tell us much about Judah's first son. Ur. We're given a handful of words about him. All we know is that he's incredibly evil. And in fact, his name is evil spelled backwards in Hebrew. He's so evil, in fact, that God puts him to death. What does that mean? Well, as troubling as that is, consider the evils that have not warranted an early demise. Apparently, You can sleep with your dad's lady friend. You can massacre an entire village. You can sell your own brother into slavery and not get met with an early demise. And yet we're told that Ur was so evil that God puts him to death. Suffice it to say, he wasn't a good dude at all. But what we need to understand is that the text here is not saying that God came down and snuck up behind Ur with a gun and shot him in the head. It just means that he died earlier than he should have. And, and if that's outrageous to us, then all death should be outrageous to us because God is the same God over all. So Ur is now out of the picture, and up next is Onan. Now, to understand what Judah says to Onan in verse 8, we need to kind of understand something about what was happening in this culture, and that is that leveret marriage was basically a given. So it seems from this text that, that Onan would have understood something culturally that is very foreign to the rest of us. And basically, it works like this. As I said before, firstborn males were given the bulk of their father's estate. And it was through them then that the family line was carried on. In fact, oftentimes, the firstborn male would be given a double portion or or almost up to half. And then the rest of the brothers would have to divide it up between themselves. And women were largely helpless in this culture. Apart from having a husband or sons who would look after them, And look out for their interests, they they would basically be just left to die. And so, if a man died, his brother would marry his widow, not only to look out for her interests, but to actually carry on the name of his brother. So, the sin of Onanism is not actually what most of us have been told. Onan's sin was his selfish resistance to giving his dead brother offspring. You see, if he had children with Tamar, his brother's wife, those children would get the bulk of Jacob's estate, and they legally would not be his. They would be Ur's children. And and potentially it could cut out any kids that he might want to have with his own wife from getting very much inheritance at all. So what we see is that Onan is acting selfishly. He's looking out for his interests alone rather than the interests of the greater clan, specifically his dead brother. And so he's out. And again, as troubling as it may be to our sensibilities that God is just going around putting people to death, whatever that means, our narrator doesn't really feel the need to explain it. In fact, almost this entire indictment of this story is laid at the feet of Judah. Not only does he not mourn the loss of his sons, he makes absolutely no effort to consider their wicked ways as having anything to do with their early demise. In fact, he starts to superstitiously blame Tamar as if she's some sort of black widow, and then secretly decides to withhold his youngest son from her in case she's got a taint on her. And he, and he doesn't want Shayla to die, and then he would live with no posterity. His line would be ended. And so rather than do what someone who has been called out by God would do and invite this young woman to live as a widow in his house, to look out for her interests until his youngest son was ready to marry her, he tells her to go back to her father's house and live there. And then we're told that Judah's wife dies. And after mourning her, he goes up with his buddies to the sheep shearing festival. This would be a time of great celebration. There would be a lot of drunken carousing and just having a great time. And by this time, Tamar has figured out Judah's game. Odds are, since we, we know that it's been a long time now that it took for Judah's wife to die, that, that Shelah has been old enough to marry off for a while, and she hasn't been he hasn't been given to Tamar. So she realizes that unless she intervenes, she will die a childless widow in her father's house. And it's interesting that apparently Tamar knows Judah's weakness. And so she dresses up as a prostitute and waits by the gate. And sure enough, Judah's just walking down the road, and what a romantic guy. I mean, he just comes right up and is like, well, should we we go for it? Tamar... It's quite a, a brilliant young woman. So she says, what will you pay me? He says, oh, I'll give you a goat. And she's like, yeah, could you just leave your driver's license and a credit card number with me so that I can make sure that I get that? And Judah, the idiot, does it. He leaves everything with her that, that can firmly identify him with this woman that he's, he thinks he's never met before. And now Tamar is pregnant by her father-in-law. She's called out for being immortal, immoral, and Judah flies off the handle. Burn her, he says. And he probably thinks to himself, Oh, finally, I can get rid of this woman, and I can marry my son off to someone who won't kill him. And then Tamar drops the bombshell, and in that very sort of sarcastic way just says, Hey, did you, do you recognize these? Are these yours? And Judah is humbled. And it's a very sort of short section where we see that in this moment, Judah is completely cut down and becomes a very different man. And he says, quite literally, she is righteous and not I. And then we're told that he never slept with her again. And then twins are born. And the youngest breaches against the oldest. And again, it, it, it seems like this sort of upside down choosing within the family of God. Now, it's interesting to note that especially in a story that is just replete with sexual perversion and dysfunction, the rebellion up for review here is not prostitution, it's not sleeping with prostitutes, and it's not even sleeping with your own daughter-in-law, even though we know that all of those things are quite horrible. No, rather, Tamar's entire role serves here as a stinging indictment against Judah's faithlessness toward the covenant family his callousness toward the calling of God. And Tamar is actually acting out in bold faith to secure not only a family line for herself, but indeed to secure the line of Abraham for the family of promise. The story of Judah and Tamar is a story of incredible grace. In just one more chapter, you can read about Judah's brother Joseph, who has been sold into slavery down in Egypt. He is seduced by his, or his, his master's wife tries to seduce him, and he flees. And his, his moral courage is, results in him getting thrown into a dungeon. And here, Judah just walks up to a prostitute who, by the way, happens to be his daughter-in-law and is like, let's go. And he's rewarded with twin sons. I mean, if we're honest, this is the sort of grace that makes a lot of us incredibly frustrated. Because we've been told most of our lives that if we just play by the rules, it will pay off. And it's infuriating when a cad like Judah seems to reap reward for his awful behavior. So what is the nature of grace? What does it mean to be chosen? And that's the very question that Simon the Pharisee was asking himself in our gospel reading. He's looking at this rabbi. He's seeing Jesus getting a foot massage from a whore. And he says, doesn't this guy know who this woman is? It doesn't take a prophet to recognize a woman like that. But it's Simon who doesn't realize who he's dealing with in Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate God of all the universe, the one who flouts conventions so horrifically, it's really not a shock that he gets himself killed. As I said at the very beginning, the story of the Old Testament narrows in on the family of promise, and all the way along, God is working out what he told Abraham, that through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. And it's like a bright red thread running through a black and white tapestry that we can trace all the way through the Old Testament storyline up into the Gospels. We can trace the lineage of God's promise all the way to the birth of Jesus. And so really, this text before us this morning is a story of messianic origins. And wouldn't you think that if this was any sort of decent God, that he'd want to play this out with some sort of respectability? Wouldn't you want to stack your family tree with successful people, with people of moral courage? But he doesn't. Instead, we could trace this story along and we would see that the family tree of Jesus is littered with prostitutes and semi-incestuous creeps, losers, almost to a man. People who have, frankly, no business being a part of the story, much less a central figure in the story. Here we see that Judah and Tamar's son, Perez, the one who makes a breach, is a direct forebear of King David. In fact, we'll find out later that he is ten generations before, which is the number of unity, the number of completion. This, This is the moment in the royal history of Israel. And here is Perez. The dude was literally his own uncle. It's that weird. And yet he is the one who gets chosen in this royal line. In the face of people who just truly, honestly deserve judgment, grace is not amazing. It is absolutely outrageous. It's horrifying. And we can try to ignore it, but eventually it's going to cause us to rethink all the things that we think we know about how the world works. I mean, why does Judah get twin sons? Why does Judah get to be the head of the royal line in Israel? Why is Judah essentially the father of Jesus? Shouldn't it be Joseph, the one who's rotting in a dungeon in Egypt? Shouldn't it have maybe been one of the other brothers, Benjamin? There's got to be someone more deserving, which is exactly what Simon the Pharisee thought to himself. He thought of himself as more deserving of Jesus' company than this slut. That's what he thought. And don't we all make that same mistake? Don't we all think of ourselves in much the same way? But when we really sit back and consider, what do we think we deserve? What do we think we deserve? Do we deserve a good, fulfilling job? Do we deserve a loving spouse? Do we deserve any of the good things that we have been given? What in our life makes us think that we do? When we actually take the time to examine ourselves, we're left with a chilling realization that we are those people that are deserving of nothing but judgment. And that's when grace is outrageous and amazing. Friends, grace, if we will let it, will be the death of us all. It's like a pool of poison, and as soon as we lay in it, it will seep into every area of our lives in which we think we are deserving and kill it off. And that's why as we come to this table, we do so in the recognition that absolutely none of us deserves to come here. I don't deserve to be up here. I don't even deserve to be in the back pew. And that's why from first to last, it is just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All is grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we prepare to come to your table to taste of true life that only comes because you have gone into true death, would we no longer feel the need to distance ourselves from other people that we think are more sinful than we are? Would we instead see ourselves as that woman who came and was loved so much that she just completely fell apart at your feet? we come and feast on you, loving you much because we have been forgiven much. We ask in your name. Amen.